You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. There are three metrics that I always look at before investing in any area or in any property. And you've probably heard me say it before, job growth, population growth, and affordability. I'm Kathy Fedke, and welcome to The Real Well Show. Our guest today lives in a market that has all of those things, massive job growth, massive population growth, and still some affordability compared to other large metros. So I'm excited to share these details with you here on The Real Well Show. Leah, welcome back to The Real Well Show. Thanks so much for having me. I can't believe what's happening in in Dallas. I mean, we knew that there was going to be massive growth there in the mid 2000s, but I didn't know it would keep going like an engine that won't stop. So what's going on? How is it possible that that the, the DFW area is still growing? You know, there's so many things going on. I don't even know where to start, but let me give it a try. <laughs> I think the the biggest thing that's driving everything is the relocation, right? You know, when we spoke years ago, we were talking about, oh my gosh, there's 450 people a day moving to Texas. And then the next time we talked, I was like, oh my goodness, we're up to 545 people a day. <laughs> and now we're over a thousand. <laughs> a day. So, a day, a day. It's wow. it's incredible. And, you know, the jobs are what's bringing it here. Anyone who's watching the news, you're seeing what's happening in our job market. We added over $120,000 or 120,000 jobs in a year. And so what's interesting is we still can't keep up with that. And so I think what really is happening in North Texas is people are looking at other markets and they're looking at what's happening and saying, well, I can go to Texas. I can live for a lot better income in terms of what I'm spending on my rent or on my mortgage and make the same and have a better quality of life. I mean, even now, even after all of our price gains, our rent affordability is still like 22% of income. And so there's not many top markets where you can say that. And I think that that makes it makes it very hard to stay in some of these markets where housing prices, I mean, the poverty level in some of the top markets is a quarter million a year of income. Right. <laughs> I'm in one of those markets. Um, <laughs> no, that are. can't be all of DFW. I mean, I would think that as you get closer into Dallas, it would be much more expensive. You get out into the suburbs, it's cheaper, right? Well, not really, because what's mm -hmm. happening is the majority of the development's actually happening in the suburbs. So if you look at, you know, we're fourth largest metro in the United States. And so if you look at the other top three metros, Chicago, New York, LA, markets like that, they grow from inward out. And so what that means is the closer you get into the city, the more desirable and the more expensive the core of the city is. That's not the way that DFW works. You know, we have the second largest number of miles per capita in the United States of highways. And so it really interconnects all of our landmass. And so if you look at these other markets and you look at their just geography, we're different just by the way we look. But then if you look at where the employers are coming, let's take Fortune 500 companies, for example. Of every Fortune 500 that has relocated here since the business boom, 100% of them went into the suburbs. And that's pretty incredible. You talk about all the big players, State Farm, Toyota, Liberty Mutual, Texas Instruments, they're all moving into the suburbs. And there's a reason for that. Number one, they can get land a lot cheaper. They can pay their people the same, but their cost of living is going to be less. They're getting massive tax incentives. So what's really happening here is we're growing outward. And so we look at Collin County, for example. Collin County is 
right now the most desirable county to be in. So that's what has Frisco and Plano where all of your big employers are going. And it's gone up. We went up like 30% aggregate just in value in the last 12 months. And so appreciation has been through the roof everywhere. So the average is like 29.2%, right? And so we look at Collin County and what's happened in Collin County is they're filling the need with apartments. So what they're saying is, well, okay, we can't really get affordable houses built here, but we can make a lot of money building class A apartments. And so they're just building these high rise apartments, one building after the next, after the next. And so what's actually happened is the prices have gone up the most in the suburbs. And what's happening is Dallas, the city of Dallas, city of Fort Worth, they're having net population loss. And that's what's so incredible about DFW is we're not really center driven from the city. We're driving the suburbs. And that is so unique because it opens us up to so much landmass for growth. I really think that plays a big role in why we're still so cheap. You know, even in your most expensive suburbs, the average house price is still about half a million. And so if we look at us being fourth largest market, soon to be third when we overtake Chicago, the fact that our average house price is still a half a million in our nicest areas, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, because I remember when we started buying in Dallas in 2004 and 2005, the really nice high-end neighborhoods were about 300,000, maybe maybe 350. So it hasn't really gone up that much then. Well, it has. It's just about what was built. So if you go back four years, so, you know, we're building less homes now than we were before the Great Recession. And so we have this housing problem that's been going on. It's not new. You know, the news likes to make it sound like it's because of COVID, but it's truly not. We've been in a housing shortage and we've had this this coming for a long time. And it's because the aggregate age of our homes is so old, we're not filling the need. So, for example, we started new construction homes, less than 50,000 homes last year. However, we have 170,000 home shortage and we had over 100,000 people move here. So we're not building enough just to suffice for who's relocating here, not to mention homes that are aging out and people that are leaving apartments to come into homes. And we've got a huge group of millennials now who are ready to be homeowners. They have the highest savings rates. They're ready to buy. There's just not enough inventory. And so what the builders have done about three or four years ago, they shifted from building the affordable home inventory, which is why the artificial kind of suppression of values, and they've shifted now into luxury homes. Of course, if you were a builder and you could build a little bit bigger house in a little bit better suburb and charge a million dollars for it, why wouldn't you? Why would you go build quarter million dollar homes? And so that's what we've been seeing. And so the vast majority of what's been built in the last two years has been very expensive properties. There hasn't been any affordable housing, but everything built before was pretty much affordable housing. So those homes went from, say, 150 to 250 or from 200 to 300, but they make up the vast majority. And so that's what's artificially keeping those numbers down. Are builders able to build cheaper homes, affordable homes today? They are. They're just choosing not to. What's Mm -hmm. happened is that they bought where the land value was higher and they could build these big developments. You know, amenities right now is the game. We're seeing it in the apartment world. We're seeing it in the new construction development world. Uh, How big can we build pools? Lagoon style pools. This is a new thing. They're building resorts with these massive ocean looking pools that are like lakes Mm -hmm. as part of their development package. And so it's all about what can I do to my neighborhood to charge more? So location, of course, is number one. And number two is the amenities. They're choosing to build more expensive property. We're still building properties under 200,000. That's how we have these properties available at 220, 230, brand new. Our builders are choosing 
to build lower property pricing. Because again, when you work with investors, it, it builds the business and it's a built-in business space and it really allows you to accelerate and grow in these suburbs. But most of your big builders, they don't want to do that. Why would they when they can go closer in and sell for six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars? If you look at our market, there's still a very small percentage of properties that make up that three-quarter million plus market. In some of the suburbs that we work in, it's less than 5%. So there's a huge need for these bigger properties, and that's why the builders have been so successful doing that. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the the lagoons because uh, we were one of the first to have the Crystal Lagoon at our uh, development in Tampa called the Murata. And it, it is the coolest concept. It, it's like a little ocean in the middle, you know, inland. It makes so much sense that Texas would be building those. They're not cheap, but... Um, you know, who wouldn't want <laughs> no, an ocean in Texas, you know, in <laughs> Dallas? <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, okay. And you're, are you seeing more inventory coming on the market? Are you seeing prices soften like you're seeing elsewhere? No, we have seen more inventory come on, but you have to put that into perspective. So right now we have 1.8 months of inventory. A balanced market is six months and a buyer's market is closer to eight or nine months. We're still below two months. So no, it's not the crazy frenzy that it was where there was literally nothing on the market, but we're still massively in a seller's market. So it just depends on where you're looking in North Texas. The numbers are anywhere from about one and a half months to two and a half months. So still not even halfway there to a balanced market. Market's crazy. I know it's so funny on on my uh, on the market podcast with Bigger Pockets. You know, people are saying, "Oh my gosh, yeah, the market's shifting. I can't sell a property in two days anymore." <laughs> well, you know, that does not mean that inventory's increased or that, that we have a massive slowdown. <laughs> it means this is good. People shouldn't have to make a, such a huge decision in two days with uh, outbidding yeah. other people. Um, or they say something like the inventory is up 50%, but what they neglect to tell you is it's still down 60. So it's all about how they can spin the statistics to fit what they're trying to get across. And, you know, I, I think there are markets where things have started to kind of slow down. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what's happened in job gains, just from COVID is a good example. You look at North Texas, and we actually have far more jobs now than what we did going into COVID. You look at the other top three metros, New York, multiple cities in California, really, and also Chicago, they're all still way down. So I think it's also about the resiliency coming out of what's happening as to how the markets are doing. These big markets that are so overinflated, they're just not voting well right now. Employers are leaving, people are leaving, and they're coming to Florida and Texas. And so, you know, you have to look at things market specific. The news does a really poor job of doing that. They talk about the whole nation like it's a market. But there is no nationwide market. There's individual regional markets, and that's really what we should be talking about. Yeah. Okay. So are you, um, you know, tell me what you're doing. What Are you personally still investing? <laughs> yeah, we're buying about a million to two million a month right now. Uh, we just hit thirty six million in real estate owned, so we're 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 taking advantage of what's going on right now. You know, it's funny rates go up a little bit and people freak out, but they forget it's still negative interest because you're making more than what you're spending. I had someone ask me today, "Well, I have a HELOC at two point seven five percent. Should I pull on that and go buy property?" Well, my answer was your worst rental probably is going to perform at 9% with principal pay down. So you're going to make three times what your borrow rate is. Why wouldn't you? Why would you but not? I, people, <laughs> I know, I know. And people, you know, it's easy to get scared, especially mm -hmm. going into an election year because everything's front and center in the news. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is rates are going to drop. 
I think they're actually probably going to drop pretty soon. We saw some periods last week where our conventional lenders were back in the low fives. So it's doing a little bit of this dance, but we're going to be there and you just have to lock at the right time. So you can buy now and refinance later. But if you don't buy now, my market, for example, we saw 30% appreciation last year. I'd be 30% poorer than I am today. <laughs> yeah, you've done, you've done all right these, these past years. Uh, now, why do you think interest rates are going down? I think that there's a misconception that raising the federal rate raises you know, buy rate mm -hmm. for investment mortgages. And it does go up a little bit, but actually investors wanted them to raise rates because investors behind the ones, you know, the, how these mortgages work, right, as they're selling them off to investors and investors back it, they wanted to see strength. They wanted to see the federal government come in and say, okay, we are committed to stopping inflation. So when they raised rates, investors actually calmed down. Mm. I actually think that we're going to continue to see a drop of rates. And I don't know that they're going to raise rates anymore on the federal level either. I think we're starting to get to that point where they might have done enough. So whatever they do at this point, they've been aggressive. That's what the investors wanted to see. And so now things are starting to calm down. But also, not as many people are going into mortgages right now. They're flipping out about a half a percent difference or a one percent difference, not thinking about the fact that when property values go up, that extra percent you paid for the few months until you can refinance is a lot less expensive than the extra value you're going to have to pay. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's supply versus demand. I'm curious because I'm seeing a lot of people putting down points to buy down the rate. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that's a good idea or do you think it's better just to refi later when rates are lower? So I have not bought down any rates, but I'm not doing conventional financing. I do portfolio, direct bank, LLC, DCSR, all fancy speak for going directly through a bank or an insurance-backed product. And so there's really no need to buy down the rate because of the types of products that we go into. I personally have done a lot of interest only lately because the cash flow skyrockets and in an appreciating market, it kind of makes a lot of sense. But in terms of conventional financing right now, if you think you're going to sit in the product a long time, then it might make sense to buy down a half a point or a point. But again, if rates go back down, as most of us are expecting next year, you're going to wish you hadn't spent that money because you're just going to go refinance. And yeah. In reality, we're in an appreciating market. And part of our model of what we recommend is that you take that equity that you gain and go reuse it. So either sell in 1031 or refinance and pull money out. So you're going to be refinancing that loan anyway. So if you follow my model and you're in my market, really doesn't make a lot of sense to buy it down because you're not going to own it long enough to realize the difference. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just talked to someone today who, was, who paid like three points and they said, that, well, we'll pay it off in five years. And I thought, oh my gosh, you could get such a lower rate in five, you know, within those five years. So you said, um, follow my strategy. Tell me more. What, what is it? So look at it this way. Let's use just simple numbers. You have a $200,000 house. It went up 20% last year. That 20% that it went up, if you pull that out of the house, that's enough to go buy another house. So every year that you own a property in an appreciating market, your return is dropping. And at the appreciation rates we've been seeing, even if they cut in half, you have enough equity in a couple of years to go double your portfolio. So there's two different types of buyers. There's a buyer that has a set amount of cash that they have to use that cash, and that's the only cash they have to keep going. There's another type of buyer that constantly has more cash coming in to keep buying. So for that buyer, it may not make sense because they have liquidity. Mm -hmm. The problem is when you have a set amount of money that you've saved up to go invest, if you don't tap into that money in the future, you're stuck. Two or three houses isn't going to retire you. A couple hundred? 
that will. <laughs> Even 20, 30 can be enough to offset most incomes. And so it's about making sure that you're using your money to its best ability. So I use what's called a cash on cash return. And what that means is I look at how much cash is coming in on a monthly basis for the amount of cash that I've put out in the transaction. So if I put 20% down and that goes up to 40% equity because I have my original 20 and 20% appreciation, my return is cut in half, half. So it's a very significant difference. And so we look at the market every year. When the leases come up for renewal, we tell you what the market's doing. We make a recommendation. Sometimes it makes sense to cash out and then go use that money that's a cash out. Sometimes it makes sense to 1031 exchange and sell. What drives that is where interest rates are and what the rent rate is. Some property values have gone so crazy that the rent rate still can't keep up even at 18% increase like we saw this year. Think about it this way. If the value goes up 30%, but the rent only goes up 18%, your return is going to be worse on the backside, even though 18% is incredible. So those are the things we have to look at. And so it's all about looking deal by deal. And part of what my team does is helps you make those decisions. Ultimately, the choice is yours. My goal is to arm you with that information. But our goal is to help you build as big a portfolio as fast as possible while in the safe areas that we invest in because of the employment growth, the diversification of employment, the expansion, all those things that we talk about. We want to make sure that you're also utilizing the properties you have to keep going. And it's more than just cash flow, right? A lot of people forget you've got depreciation on your taxes. You've got about 3% a year in return just on your principal pay down on your mortgage. It all adds up. It's very easy to get double digit returns, even in a very safe investment. Oh, so many things I want to bring up, but let's do this one. Um, I, I would think that a lot of people get freaked out thinking about owning 10 or 20 or 30 properties or hundreds like you do. Um, obviously, you have management, so you can control the management of your properties. But for somebody who lives out of state or out of the country, I know you're still working with a lot of real wealth Australians who have never even seen their properties. I mean, how how, do the, how does someone find comfort in and having so many single family properties versus just an apartment. Yeah. So I'll tell you, I own apartments, I own commercial and I own single family and I cannot stand multiple. <laughs> That's just the truth. I, I just can't. They're, they're more difficult for a lot of reasons. And so anyone who says to me, well, I'm going to go buy one apartment because that's easier than 50 houses. I will take up that debate any day because I do it. Right. And so for me, it's about what is the simplest? What is the most resilient? So let's start with resiliency. People always need a place to live, no matter what. People always need somewhere to live. Our market, for example, going into COVID, we were 50% renters on the Dallas side, 40% renters on the Fort Worth side, Tarrant County. What happened with COVID is a lot more people became renters. A, the housing shortage drove that. B, affordability with rates going up and prices going up drove that. And C, people not knowing the area and not wanting to commit yet. So we've taken what's already a massive renters market and made it even bigger. In fact, almost 50% of the houses sold in my market last year sold to investors. And that gives a lot of resiliency because these people all have equity. It's not like what it was in 2007 and 2008 where nobody had equity. All their rates were going to skyrocket. Totally different world that we're in right now. And what's happening is people aren't moving. The people who do own homes, they're locked into these ridiculously low rates, 2.5%, 2.75%. They physically can't buy something cheap enough to equal what they're in. So it's just compounding the problem. And so really, at the end of the day, I think that it's about your team. It's about who you're using, what market you're in, and making sure that you're making the safest choices you can. Is that to say that everything is perfect in investing in single family? Absolutely not. 
but there's a massive need and that need gives you some comfort in knowing that there's always going to be someone looking to rent a home. Apartments have higher turnover. They tend to be people who are less financially stable. They're also people who are used to apartment hopping. We'll find houses where someone's lived there for eight to 10 years. If the investor doesn't sell or if it's been someone who was, you know, a lot of times we'll buy property where another investor had it and now they're selling it and we come in and renovate it. And we'll buy these houses where I had one where the tenant's been there 20 (laughs) years, 20 years. You just don't see that in apartments like you do in houses. And so when we talk about turnover, we talk about the different things that happen. And of course, as property managers, we're going to handle it all for you. Can I tell you that every property manager is like we are and has all the different facets to handle those things that we do know, but we do. And so it's about finding a partner to work with that's going to be able to handle anything that comes up. We have in-house legal counsel, in-house collections, in-house evictions, in-house leasing, in-house maintenance, in-house acquisitions, in-house sales. I mean, literally everything is under one roof. So it's about controlling the situation and controlling the experience. And yes, you get to benefit from the same property management team and model that I do on my portfolio. And so that's the only way you can make it simple. It really is as close to passive as you can be without being passive. But in terms of comfort, it's about trusting who you're working with and understanding their model. You know, we're out there, you're out there. We educate on what we do. We educate on what we believe. So people are comfortable and they have an understanding of what we're doing behind the scenes. And I think that that's key because if you understand why we do what we do and how we do what we do, and of course we live in a state that makes it possible for us to do all that Mm -hmm. as landlords, it really, I think, brings that sense of comfort. What should people be asking when interviewing a property manager? Like, Like top three to five things. Uh, Front and center insurance. Uh, It's actually not a state requirement in most states that the property manager carry insurance. That's a huge one. And so that's always been at the top of my list. I think that there's there's a loophole where if the owner of the company is more than 50% or something owner and they're not licensed, then they have to. Other than that, there's no requirement and the state doesn't verify it. So you need to make sure whoever you're working with is properly licensed and insured. Number two, you have to make sure they're actually an Mm -hmm. investor. (laughs) I can't tell you how many people are in property management that live in apartments and don't own a property. No one is going to protect your money like you will. So your goal is to find someone who understands what it is to rely on cash flow, what it is to rely on an investment property. And if the person who you're working with is not following the same model that you are, then they're not going to understand your needs and what your goals are. So that's really important. Third and foremost, make sure they have experience. Make sure they're not a newbie. Property (laughs) management is a beast if you don't know what you're doing. And so make sure you're working with someone that really has Mm -hmm. experience and has the ability. You know, COVID was a great way to kind of show people what experience brings because there were things changing every day. And our state was pretty easy compared to most. But you had to be on top of things. You had to make fly decisions because there really wasn't a lot of clarity coming down from the state's government, from the judges. And so by having that experience, having the knowledge, knowing the laws, knowing the leases, we were able to make those decisions comfortably instead of just sitting on our hands like a lot of people did. I was evicting people when they were telling me not to evict people. So it's about being comfortable enough in what you're doing that you know you can justify it. And that really, at the end of the day, that's a property management. And then you guys went through the the pipes freezing, right? Did, Did that happen in Dallas? Yeah, we did. It was crazy. Yeah. So my little neighborhood of 28 homes had almost half our homes burst, but we all have those ceiling sprinkler systems and they're not designed for that. So they, they froze, but we were lucky. We only had a few houses flood, mostly really old houses that weren't properly insulated. But at one point we did have over 200 homes with frozen Mm. homes. Yeah. And I know you, you got on it and we didn't hear a single 
single complaint at real wealth. I know yep. you handled it. Um, well, I'm really excited to be um, launching something with you that we can talk a little bit about, um, but our single family rental fund. I Do you want to mention that? I mean, I can't imagine having a better, sure. better team to work with. <laughs> We're very excited. You know, it's, it's crazy to think we've been working together more than 10 years now. I know it's really been, I know. And the amount of people that (laughs) rave about you is, is, uh, you know, impressive. So, but there's also people who just don't want to do anything, right? They just want to be completely passive and go sail around the world. So I know you've heard that. And you came to me and said, Kathy, I want to do a fund. A lot of your Australian clients and a lot, a lot of the people that you know, from Real Wealth, just want us to manage everything. So we've been setting up this fund and we'll be launching it any day. The The um, details on how to find out will either be in the show notes or just join realwealth.com and you'll you'll get the email. But uh, you want to talk about the strategy? I mean, I, it sounds like you already did. It's pretty much the same strategy, right? <laughs> well, so, you know, the interesting thing about this fund is that they're going to get access to the same types of properties I buy. So for the clients who know what I do, we buy distressed properties. So although most of our customers are buying clean properties, mostly new construction and the returns are great, they see me making these incredible returns by buying properties below market value, fixing them up and renting them out. And it allows us to achieve numbers more like what we were seeing before everything went crazy. And that built-in equity makes a huge difference too because of the ability to go further with the money that you have. So it's not scalable, right? I can't help 1,400 people invest in rehab properties. There's just not enough crews. We, we have you know, massive shortages. But what I can do is open a fund and do that same model and give people access to go into that fund. And so I'm really excited to be able to offer the model that I've used to get to my success uh, to clients. And it, it really is, it's a mission of sorts, I think, for both you and I, because we believe so much in the market and we believe in the model. And it's going to be so exciting to be able to let all of us keep that equity because that's something that we just don't see. Yeah. Anymore. I know so many of the teams we work with are like, Oh, why did we sell all these properties? We should have kept them all, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a way for everybody to win. And again, it's a 506 C so we can talk about it here and it should be literally any day, but you can also go to, I have a new website, kathyfedke.com. There's a little button there that says invest with me. If you want to get on the list to find out more. Okay. And then, you, you know, you're finding surprisingly low, rates for, for um, portfolio loans for, for multiple multiple properties that we'd be able to use on the fund, but you're using them on your own portfolio. So yeah, tell us about those portfolio loans. So I've got a few different products that I've been using. So it really depends on what the goals are. And so when we talk about cash on cash returns, I already said, I look at that for everything because I want to make as much cash as I can on the amount of cash I'm putting out. And financing is what really allows you to take a return and propel Mm -hmm. it much higher. So we look at two different products. It's either a 75% or an 80% cash out product. So what will happen is you go into the properties in cash, or if you're buying yourself, you buy with whatever terms you have available, and then you go cash out refinance onto this type of financing. So there's direct portfolio, which is just like conventional loans that you probably know a little bit more about. And the only difference is you're going direct through a bank. It's in a company name, so it doesn't have to be in your personal name. Does it go on your personal credit? And it really is just a very simple process, a lot less documentation. You're not having to give your firstborn and your blood type. It's just 
a little bit of paperwork, a couple tax returns, and you're generally good to go. So portfolio is what most of us use, especially at our level, because it's just so much easier to work with. And it's about relationships. It's that personal relationship handhold feel that we look for in everything that we do too. And so I personally, um, so I just closed a package and I think it was like 30 houses and it was a 75% cash out and I got low fives. And that was great. That's a 30-year fixed, 30-year amortizing product. That's incredible, right? Because it's conventional terms. And in addition, I have another one that's about to close that's an interest-only product that's an 80% cash out in the low fives. And uh, that's interest-only for five years, and then it resets to a 25-year AM. But I've already told you I'm not going to own these guys in two years because I'll have taken my equity and gone and turned one into two and two into four and so on and so on. So uh, creative financing is our specialty. We don't write the loans. We don't make any money on these loans. We refer these people because they do a good job. And so what's about making sure that, you know, the whole package comes together. You have to have the right property, the right team, the right market, the right model, the right financing. And so it's about controlling all those pieces to make sure that we're steering ourselves and our customers in the right Very exciting. All right. So if anybody just wants to know how to get in touch with Leah, she just did a webinar for Real Wealth. You can go to realwealthshow.com, click on the learn tab or the invest tab, Oh, one of those, and you'll see uh, webinars or it'll, it'll be a drop down for uh, for the Dallas area. You just did a really great webinar telling about all the things happening in Dallas and how people can work with you. So again, just go to realwealth.com, look for that webinar and you'll get all of Leah's information. So wonderful. So great to have you here back on the Real Wealth Show. And I can't wait to get out to Dallas to see what we're buying. <laughs> I'm so excited. All can't right. wait. And thank you for joining me here on the Real Wealth Show. Again, you can go to realwealthshow.com. Just click on the Learn tab or the Invest tab. The Invest tab will take you to the Dallas page. The Learn tab will take you to our webinars. And you can see Leah's latest webinar where she talks about all the massive growth happening in the DFW area. And you can get her contact information while you're there. Thanks for joining me here on The Real Well Show. We'll see you next time. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.